So good morning. Uh, my name is David. People call me DC here. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you so much for being here to worship with us. Uh, we're going to take a break from our series uh, in First Timothy and uh, kind of go back into the history of our faith and celebrating the Reformation. Uh, we want to go back to our roots. Now, I know we see those commercials on TV all the time, right? Ancestry.com. I'm always curious about what my profile will be. Right? If I enter my information, like looking back at my previous generations, I think it's interesting to know what our history is. And I know every Korean family thinks that they came from uh, royalty, right? Um, but if we, um, especially the Kims, but, <laughs> uh, but if we enter um, our church's information in Ancestry.com, it will actually take us back 500 years. Uh, in two days, it's Halloween, uh, October 31st. Uh, we call it Halloween, but back then they called it Hallow's Eve, uh, because November 1st was known as All Saints Day. This was a holiday that uh, the Roman Catholic Church celebrated, way, where they celebrated the saints. And actually back then, too, they would dress up as demons and goblins. Uh, the reason why is because in the medieval times, they thought to, in order for them to get rid of Satan or to repel Satan, uh, you, you need to mock him. You need to mock him. So they dressed up as like devils and Satan's in, in order to repel Satan, to get rid of him, because Satan is a very prideful individual, and so if you make fun of him, he'll go away. Only if that was true, right? I'll dress up as Satan every day if people think I'm weird. But that's what they believed, and that's kind of the history of Halloween, Hallow's Eve. And, uh, you know, nerdy Christians and pastors like, uh, like myself, I like to think of it as Reformation Day. Uh, but if we call it Reformation Day, no one would actually come to Fam Jam. So Fam Jam is definitely a better draw uh, for families, and students. But uh, 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk uh, named Martin Luther nailed a 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, And these 95 theses were actually against uh, the indulgences, uh, where the Catholic Church was basically selling uh, forgiveness uh, and shedding off years for the loved ones in purgatory. So people will be purchasing these things. And Martin Luther, looking at this and how uh, the Catholic Church was cheapening repentance in protest against indulgences, he nailed uh, 95 Theses on the church door. Um, Consequently, after that, actually a few years after that, that's when actually the Reformation exploded. Uh, When Luther nailed those 95 Theses, he was actually trying to be a good Catholic. Uh, At this point, he didn't understand, or he didn't come to the understanding of this doctrine called justification by faith. And so for the next two weeks, we want to look at the Reformation. I'm going to be focusing on Martin Luther and Pastor Michael next week. We'll be focusing on another significant figure during the Reformation. But it's valuable to know our roots, uh, why we believe in what we believe, why we preach the way that we preach, why we view the Bible that, uh, in the way that we view it, uh, because the Reformers had to fight for and contend for the scriptures, and the gospel. Um, some of them actually gave up their own lives. They became martyrs for, uh, to keep the integrity of scripture and the gospel. And, and this fight for our faith still goes on today, especially in our culture, where we want to dilute the gospel, where we want to say that this is ancient literature. It has no relevance for us today. So to know uh, where we came from uh, is very important so that we can guard ourselves from the same mistakes that the early church made. 
And so uh, Martin Luther was one of the most interesting and controversial figures in the Reformation. Uh, if you want to read up on him, I, you could just Google him. But there's also a movie uh, that you can rent. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on Netflix, but you could probably find it cheap. It might even be on YouTube. But it's, it's actually really well made. Uh, I encourage you to look into his life. And today what I want to do is focus on one of his most uh, significant uh, contributions in this essay titled, Freedom of the Christian. Freedom of the Christian. Uh, here, here we will get a glimpse of Luther's life, his core conviction, and what led him to reform the church. And, and, and where we are today as a church stems from his core conviction of this idea of justification by faith alone. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. And we can just read one verse, verse 17. Romans 1, verse 17. is going to uh, pop up on the screen behind me uh, for you guys to follow along. This was the passage that launched uh, the Protestant Reformation. So let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. So in this essay, Freedom of the Christian, he gives us two propositions. Two propositions. First one is this. The Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. The Christian man or woman is the freest Lord of all, subject to none. And the second proposition is this. The Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Uh, if you take these two statements, you think it's, it's paradoxical. It almost contradicts itself. So what does Luther mean? So first... The Christian is the most free individual. Uh, Luther, a little bit more about Luther. Luther was an exceptionally bright young man, uh, and his parents saw great potential in him. And like many of our Asian parents, they steered him to law, uh, to become a lawyer. And he actually enrolled in a university in Wittenberg to study law, and he dropped, off, uh, dropped out uh, actually after a year. Uh, a little time after that, he, he was on his horse riding, and he, was, he found himself in the middle of a thunderstorm. Uh, and a lightning struck very close to him. And now, back then, uh, a thunderstorm, lightning, it meant that uh, it symbolized God's judgment and his wrath. And so uh, Luther, being a good Catholic, he was scared, uh, literally scared to death. Because uh, he was thinking, I, hey, I didn't get to make my last confessions. Uh, I, I haven't had my last rites. Um, he was fearful of dying on that spot without going through his religious rituals. And he literally cry out, cried out, save me, St. Anna, I will become a monk. And actually, he became a monk. Uh, this thunderstorm uh, chased him into the monastery, and he became an honest Augustinian monk. Uh, and he maximized, or he took this life of a monk so seriously. He's the type that would not cut corners. Um, and, and, the, and the monastic life was filled with so many different rules, right? How and when to bow, even how to walk, how to talk, where to look and when, how to hold their utensils, right? This actually sounds like some of our childhood growing up in a traditional Asian household, but there, it was a life filled with rules. He wouldn't eat for days, he would actually flog himself, right? self-flagellate uh, himself to, um, to suppress his sinful urges. 
And even in time of penance, where he would go into the booth and confess his sins, it was known that he would actually spend four to six hours confessing every sin, so much so that the confessors or the priests would be like, hey, Luther, you got to take it easy. you got to take it easy. He was literally confessing every single little sin in his thought, in his heart, um, everything. He didn't want to miss anything uh, to, so that he would be forgiven of his sin. And in the Catholic faith, faith, how sorry you are about your faith actually matters. Contriteness. If you're not sorry for your sins, you, you, you could be sure that you will not be forgiven. And so this was a uh, religious anthem in Luther's day. God will not de- deny his grace to those who try their best. God will not deny his grace to those who try their best. Now, that sounds familiar. Uh, that may be actually some of our, uh, uh, our thinking when it comes to Christianity. If I just try my best, of course, God would uh, give me his grace. He would, he would bless me. And so Luther literally tried his best. He, he followed the rules, and he actually went beyond some of the requirements. This is, this is the type of individual that Luther was. And so the deeper he got into his religious life, the more insecure and terrified he grew of God. He was a prisoner of God's law and his own guilty conscience. He started to even question his motivation of being a monk, his motivation of confession. He realized that, man, am I just doing this because I want God to get off my back? Am I doing this so that I can avoid hell? So he realized that even in his religious duties, it was very inward focused. It was very selfish, which terrified him even more. He was a prisoner of his own guilty conscience. How good is good enough? What if my best is not good enough for God? And so the question that haunted Luther was this, how can I be sure? How can I be sure of my salvation? The core question that Luther struggled with was a question of assurance. How can I be sure that God loves me? How can I be sure that God's grace will be there for me? If I die, how can I be sure if I, get in, if I can get into heaven? Now, this is a question that I think plagues a lot of us. Right? If you were to die today and you're at the gates of heaven, how sure would you be that God will let you in? And I think it's fair to say that many of us, we, we lose sleep over this. We may be anxious about this idea of assurance. How can we, one, be sure of salvation? What guarantee do we have? So why was Luther so neurotic and paranoid in his religious duties? It's because he, got, he viewed God purely as a law giver. He, he viewed God as being holy and righteous. So he had this caricature of God that, that was just this judge, this wrathful judge waiting to smite sinners. And that's why he was so neurotic and paranoid about his religious duties. And so he took uh, the laws of God seriously, and he tried to live them out, every single one of them. So even though he increased in his religious output, there was an overwhelming sense of guilt because of this view of God that he had. And eventually he started to hate God. He hated God's righteousness. He hated God's holiness because he found uh, this was impossible. How can I live to the perfect standard that God uh, describes to us in Scripture? And so he started resenting and hating God. So what changed? 
What changed this man who was a prisoner of God's law and prisoner of his own guilty conscience? How does one, someone like Luther declare that the Christian is the most free Lord of all? How did he come to this conclusion? So what changed? What changed? So one day he was reflecting on the sacrament of penance. Now the sacrament of penance is when you go into that booth and, and then you confess your sins. And, and contriteness was very important, right? How sorry you felt over your sin. But as he was thinking about this, uh, this sacrament of penance of confessing sin, uh, where his first atten- like his attention was all on how he felt about his sin. So he was concentrating on that. How sorry am I over my sin? But he started to think about what the, prince, uh, what the pr- priest says after the confession. The priest pronounces, by God's word, promise of forgiveness. So he, his attention now went to what the priest would declare over the sinner, pronouncing him forgiveness based on God's promises. And then something clicked in his head. Something clicked in his head. Because his, his, his first attention went to how sincere and guilty the sinner felt instead of what the priest would pronounce over the sinner. And the question that he, he, he asked, instead of how serious or how guilty did I feel, the question now turned to, would the sinner trust in God's promise? That's a difference. That's, that's a huge difference between how guilty do I feel versus does a sinner trust in God's word of forgiveness and his promise? And this changed everything for Luther. He realized that forgiveness is not dependent on contriteness, how sorry one felt, but forgiveness is granted simply by receiving God's promises. And this is what launched the Reformation. In other words, the sinner's hope is found not in himself, but outside of himself in God's word, a promise. And so the question is, would the sinner take God at his word? Would we take God at his word? And this was simple but profound. And so Luther started digging deeper. This led him to scripture and in reading scripture in his original language. And so he investigated this idea more in the study of Romans, which brings us to our passage today. Verse 17, once again, For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, this whole time, Luther believed that it was his righteousness his good deeds, his religious duties that would get, gain God's favor, that would allow him to enter into heaven. But this verse tells a completely different story. He discovered the gospel while meditating on this passage. Here it is. A sinner can be made righteous by accepting the righteousness that God offers through faith. Let me say that one more time. A sinner can be made righteous by accepting the righteousness that God offers through faith. See, the very thing that Luther was chasing after, that he was trying to obtain, namely the righteousness that God required, God offers to us freely. For in it, the righteousness. Now, what, what is, for, what is uh, Luther talking about? He's talking about the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and the righteous shall live by faith. Whose righteousness? Not Luther's righteousness. 
Not our righteousness, but God's righteousness. Right? The sinless, perfect life of Jesus Christ is now being offered freely by grace. Theologians call this an alien righteousness, a righteousness that cannot come from within, but that comes from outside. An alien righteousness found in Jesus Christ. So how does one receive this alien righteousness? By faith. By faith. Now, this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You are justified by placing your faith in someone else's righteousness that is offered freely to us. This is good news. This is what Luther was looking for. He himself was trying to become righteous on his own through his religious duties, and he just couldn't find it. The deeper he went into God's law, the more guilty he, he, he uh, felt. And so when he came upon this passage in, in the original language, he realized that God offered a righteousness that is perfect. And how we receive it is by faith. Luther discovered that God didn't want our goodness. God doesn't want, he doesn't want our goodness. He wants our trust. He wants our trust. He wants our faith. And so the natural follow-up question to this is, how much faith? How strong does my faith need to be in order to receive this alien righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because, you know, I still have questions. I can't really understand the Trinity. This whole idea of predestination, I don't know. This whole idea about Jesus being God and man, like, it doesn't really make sense. Right? We, we're, our faith is, is, is filled with holes. So the question, how strong does your faith and my faith have to be in order to receive this righteousness that God offers to us freely? Now, if you're asking that question, we are once again in error. We're once again in error. This is not the heart of the Christian message, that you have to have a strong and adequate and an abundance of faith in order to be saved. But naturally, naturally, we want to insert ourselves in salvation. We want to insert our deeds. We want to insert ourselves in order to be saved because we don't like handouts. We live in a works-based, deeds-based system in this world. So when God offers to us free, we're like, wait, wait, wait. I still have to play a part in it. Right? I still have to really, really believe. I still have to have this amount of faith, right? Brothers and sisters, no. That is not the gospel. It isn't the strength of our faith, but the sufficiency of God's promise that saves us. It is not the strength of our faith. It's not how sincere our faith is that saves us. It is the sufficiency of God's promise that guarantee that saves us. So even the most frail and weak faith placed in the promise of God can save. That's good news for us, especially for those that feel like, man, my faith is not that developed. My faith is so weak. No, it doesn't matter. If you even take that small amount of faith and place it in the sufficient promise of Christ and God, you are saved. This is the gospel. And by faith, what is Christ? His righteousness now becomes ours. What belongs to him is now ours. Now, to illustrate this point, in his essay, this is what Luther writes. 
Christ, the rich and pious husband, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his goods. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her, since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And since she had her, has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own, and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. All mine is his, and all his is mine. Wow. What Luther is saying as sinners, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to him as a married couple. He is our groom. We are his bride. So even the worst of my sins will not destroy me. Why? Because Christ, his righteousness now is imputed. It is transferred to me. He takes all my bad and he gives all his goods to me. This is that great exchange. This is the heart of the gospel message. By faith, we are united to him. No sin, no, no matter how bad we are, will God leave us? No. We are united to him as a husband and wife would be. Now, church, I want to ask, do you believe this? Do you believe in this? Do you live in this type of freedom? Do you believe what belongs to Jesus now belongs to you? Do you believe that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner condemned, but he sees his son, Jesus Christ, perfect, blameless, pure, I'm just curious, what would our lives look like if we truly believed this truth and actually lived it out as if we were the bride of Christ? So the Christian is the most freest of all because Christ has freed us and he is now our husband. Moving on, Luther continues to write his essay, seemingly to contradict himself by, uh, by sharing the second, second proposition. And that is this, the Christian is the most dutiful servant of all. How can the Christian be most free but be a servant of all? In his essay, Luther asks this question, if faith does everything and by itself suffices for justification, why then are good works commanded? It's a good question. Are we then to take ease and do no works content with faith? And the obvious answer is no. The answer is no. Luther is asking, if we are justified by faith alone, then, then what, why, why are there so many commands in Scripture? Why does God ask us to do so many different things? Should we just be content with just faith and just ignore our, all these commands that God gives us? And Luther says, no. And so what Luther is identifying in, in, in us, right, we have two natures right, or two beings. We have the inner being and we have the outer being. The inner being is, is what is wrong with us. We are born into sin. We are corrupt. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, the inner man is renewed. We are given a new identity. We are born again. We are cleansed from our sins. We are deemed righteous. The inner man is. But yet we have this outer man or outer woman or outer being who still struggle with sin, who lives in a fallen and sinful world where Satan can still tempt. Right? He, he's talking about the outer man. And what he's saying here, what, 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 why God gives us his laws and his works to do is so that the outer man will conform to the inner man. 
So our inner reality is I'm a child of God. I am redeemed. I am righteous. But our outer is constantly battling with our inner. And so God gives us his laws and his commands so that our outer man will conform to the inner man. And we learn this truth using the same illustration that, that Luther makes in marriage. Right? As soon as I said I do and Jane said I do, we are now, our identity has changed, whether we like it or not. I'm now her husband and she is now my wife. But does my husbandness like fully develop at that moment? No. I still have bachelor tendencies. Jane still has bachelor tendencies, right? We, like, I would go out and, and, and not come in late at night, and I wouldn't tell Jane. Or I'll spend money the way that I want to spend it without telling Jane. Right? We still have these tendencies, and in married couples, you know this. We still have these single tendencies even after our identity has changed. Right? Over time, I start to learn how to do the laundry, over time, I start to do the dishes. And over time, I start to communicate with her and we share a schedule. We join bank accounts to really truly be united. But that union doesn't happen immediately as far as our practice of that union goes. Right? This makes sense. It takes time for us to develop into the husband that God has called us to be and for wives to be the wives that God has called them to be. And the same is true in the Christian life. Even though our status and our identity has changed, at that moment, it still takes time for us to understand what it means to be righteous. Righteous. And so God gives us his word. He gives us his law, not to rob us of joy, but to conform us in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so just as we are Christ's bride, we have duties to fulfill. We have commands to obey but it is in the context of a union that we already have. Let me say that again. We have duties to fulfill as Christians. We should not be scared of them. Why? Because we are doing them in the context of union. We're not doing it so that we can obtain union. That is, again, the law. That, that, that is workspace righteousness. No, we are united to him. Therefore, in the context of this union, we can be free to obey. See, Luther tried to obey the laws in an attempt to gain assurance of his salvation. It actually accomplished the opposite. It made him more insecure. See, the law can only teach us how to live, but it cannot give us the power to live it out. It gives us a picture of what our life should look like, but it cannot give us the power to live it out. Only Jesus Christ can. Only our union with him can. And so Luther identifies this truth by going back to the Garden of Eden as an illustration of how the Christian should now live his, his or her life. Adam was created by God, just and righteous, so that he could not have needed to be justified or made righteous by keeping the garden and working it. But he might not, but he might not be unemployed. God gave him the business of keeping and cultivating paradise. These would have indeed been works of perfect freedom being done for no object but that of pleasing God. What is he saying here? Now, obviously, we know what happened in the garden. There was dysfunction, separation. They were chased out. Adam and Eve were chased out 
of the garden. So now sin entered. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are back in the Garden of Eden status where we are righteous. We are now, uh, God looks upon us as just individuals. We are not working for salvation. We are working for a savior. And there's a, there's a huge difference. We are free not to win God's pleasure. We are free to work because we already have his pleasure. Now this frees us completely. No more anxiety, no more fear. We are free now to obey and to try to pursue God in holiness. Church, how are we serving? Are we serving? How are we exercising this freedom, this this free gift of grace in Christ Jesus? How are we exercising our freedom? Are we are using our freedom to serve ourselves and our own self-interest? Are we using our time, resources, and, and our money just to serve our own pleasures? Or are we taking this freedom and with pleasure using it to glorify God and to live for him? We are not in want. We have nothing. In, we, we, aren't, we aren't in need of anything because Jesus Christ has given us everything. Church, do we have this attitude in our obedience to God? Or are we begrudgingly serving him? Jesus Christ has given us forgiveness. He justifies us. He redeems us. He adopts us. He gives us his very perfect righteousness. And so the Christian has nothing to prove, nothing to earn. But we have all the freedom to obey God because of the abundance that we have received. We have abundance. So first of all, Christians, we we should not be seeking to be served. We should be looking to serve others. Tim Keller, uh, one time after preaching uh, the gospel, was um, approached by a member in this congregation. Um, that was a, he, uh, the, the individual was astonished by this notion that you are saved by this free grace, this gift of God, unmerited favor, is given to us freely. And she told him that this was a really scary notion. And, and Tim Keller was curious of, and, and asked this question. And the quote should go up. I was intrigued. I asked her, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it is really true that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, at God's infinite cost, then there is nothing he cannot ask me. This, this sister, after hearing the message of grace, she understood something very profound. Because if we play a part in our salvation, I'm entitled to a certain lifestyle. God, I'm entitled to certain blessings. Right? Keep those sufferings away. Give me some blessings. As long as I pay my taxes and my dues, God has to, in some ways, just leave me alone. Let me, let me just enjoy my life. But if I had nothing at all to do with my salvation, it was a pure gift of grace that God paid the infinite cost for, then there's no limit of what he can ask me. He can demand my entire life. And it's true. What this, what this sister discovered, it was true that God can ask our entire self to be pledged to him. 
See, the power to serve and to subject ourselves to all comes from this doctrine of being justified by faith, receiving the righteousness as a free gift. There is an abundance, and an abundance we can give. See, the Christian life has nothing, we have nothing to gain but everything to give. And the question still remains is, do we believe in the declaration and the promise of God? That's what it comes down to. Brothers and sisters, friends, that's what it comes, comes down to. Do you believe? Do you trust in God's promises, his declaration of forgiveness in your life? So to close, a Christian is the freest, but also the most dutiful. It was this doctrine of justification by faith that led Luther to live his life in freedom and complete servitude. And so, brothers and sisters and friends, can I ask you this? Are you free? Are you free? Are you truly free, or are you enslaved to your own pursuit of your own righteousness and morality? Are you trying to prove your self-worth to God, trying to live a life to earn God's favor, Are you free or are you you a slave? And let me ask you this. How how far has your efforts gotten you? How's it going? How assured are you? How sure are you that your works, your good deeds, will earn you a place in heaven? See, the only way we can think we have assurance of salvation based on our own righteousness We have to do one of two things, and I've shared this before with you guys. The only way we can think my righteousness can get me into heaven is if if we inflate ourselves and exaggerate our morality. The secondly is to diminish and downplay God's holiness. Those are the only two ways when we look at Scripture to say that, God, you have to accept me based on my righteousness, is by inflating and exaggerating our holiness or downplaying, downplaying and diminishing God's holiness. Both. It's, it's, we're tricking ourselves. We're, being, we're, we're, we're disillusioned if we think that I can be perfectly righteous as, a God, as God's uh, words command us. God requires perfect righteousness, and this is the good news. He offers it to you today. He offers perfect righteousness to you today. All you need to do is believe. All you need to do is believe. And if that's you, please, Pastor Mike and I would love to talk to you. We'll love to talk to you. We would love to pray with you. If, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ, if you don't have this perfect righteousness and you want it, please come and talk to us. And we'd love to pray with you and share with you what are the next steps. For those that answered yes, I'm free. I'm free. Let me ask you this. How are you using your freedom? See, we think we find a loophole in the gospel, right? There's grace. I could do whatever I want now. I know so many of us are tempted to think this way. I can live however I want to live. I can use my time, my resources, however I want to use it. I can sin as much as I want. Let me ask you, how are you using your freedom? This amazing, rich gift that God gives to us. Are we using it to serve ourselves? Or are you seeking to glorify God and serve others? 
Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through its love serve one another. The life Luther was looking for in himself could only be found in Jesus. Jesus, who was God's son, in obedience to his father, took on flesh. He lived the perfect righteous life, obeying every one of God's commands. But yet he subjected himself to be a slave to all, dying a criminal's death on that cross for you and me. And it is through his sacrifice, through his death, we can be called righteous when we place our faith in him. But he did not remain dead. God raised him up from the dead after three days, giving us his righteousness for those that place their faith in him. Brothers and sisters, can we direct our faith to Jesus once again? Now, don't ask how strong does my faith need to be. No. Let's look at his sufficiency. Let's look at his power. And let's just believe that he did what he did and that God rose him from the dead. Let's place our faith in him again today. Let me pray for us as we turn to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you so much for this free gift of grace that you give to us. Not of our doing, not that we could have earned it, not that we are worthy of it, but out of your love upon sinners like me, you sent your son Jesus Christ to live that perfect life, to die the death that we deserved, and to raise him again after three days so that we can be looked upon as your children, to be justified. God, help us. Help us to believe Help us to believe in you. Help us to take your words over our own subjective feelings. I want to pray for those brothers and sisters here that do not know who you are, who have not placed their faith in you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you give them faith. Grant them the gift of faith. And may you save them today. And as a church, help us, Lord, to use this freedom that we have in Christ to subject ourselves to all to glorify you through serving others that are in need. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We give you all praise, glory, and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.